The following message is by Pastor Eric Ludy. More information about the church at Ellerslie is available at www.ellerslie.com. This is the classic Christmas message. Technically, I should have waited and held off on this message because it fits perfectly at Christmas time. But Christmas time has a tendency to be cute and fluffy and, uh, you know, snowy. It's not necessarily the power of the gospel that resonates in our souls at Christmas time. You know, we, we smile and we talk about the beautiful thing that Christ came, but to realize where he came to is very, very significant. The king of all kings is going to come to this earth, and when he does, what is his strategy? And when you look at what his strategy is, you, there's good reason as humans to call it into question and say, God, did you think this through? So look at this title. Stable born and on purpose. This was not an accident. This was deliberate on the part of God to reveal to our understandings the depths of the gospel. All right, so again, buckle seat belts, pull tight. Stable born and on purpose. So we're going to do uh, a little, uh, we'll get some raw materials out on the table just so that we can reflect upon them. This is, uh, we could call well, the highness of God a meditation on his knowledge and understanding. There's different things that you could go to scripture and just absorb yourself into and just say, God, who are you? Introduce yourself to me. We have a tendency to build our own God based on our experience with God or based on what we've heard about God. I mean, there's all sorts of different ideas or notions about God. Who is God? You know how we find out? His word. His word perfectly introduces the fullness of deity to us. So his word in text, and then his word in person, which is Jesus Christ. The full expression of God is made known to us. Isn't that an amazing thought? That we can actually know who God is. Now God is so vast, so eternal, so boundless, how in the world could we possibly as humans with our minuscule little minds comprehend this God? Well, it doesn't happen instantaneously, but we can have glimpse We can have understanding and we can have an accurate perception of who he is because of his word. And so, what about his knowledge and understanding? What does he know? What does he see? What does he comprehend? Is he a distant God and he understands certain things and he understands details about your life? Like if God was giving, you know, some type of trivia pursuit, you know, God would win. You know, we, we know that he's smarter than all of us. Uh, so it's like, uh, and where did Eric go to college? And God could say, uh, Whitworth College. And we'd all be like, whoa, did you all know that? Some of you are thinking, I didn't even know that. God knows it. He knows that I went to Whitworth. And you didn't. He's pretty smart, isn't he? I want you to realize that doesn't even come close to what God knows. The depths of what God knows about the life of Eric Ludi far surpasses what Eric Ludi knows about his life. Think about that. He doesn't just have a PhD on the life of Eric Ludi. He knows every intricate intricate movement of my heart and mind. Things I'm not even aware of. He knows every cell within my body and what it is doing at this exact moment and what it will be doing in the future. What course, what trajectory it is aimed towards. 
How to get Eric directly into the path that he has designed for me. He knows everything about your lives that are surrounding my life and every cell within you and how it is going to interact with the world around you and then how it is going to run smack into my life at a certain point in time. He knew how to get you here today so that you would encounter this. The vastness, and that doesn't even come close to what God knows. So let's just go through it. Let's let the word talk instead of Eric trying to babble on about things that he hardly comprehends. My God's understanding is mispar, which means, this is what it says in Psalm 147, 5, incalculable, infinite, and beyond measure. I, I don't know how to comprehend infinite understanding. At least give me a measurement. Something like God knows this. But actually, Psalm 147 says that his understanding is mispar, which is not an accidental statement. He knows the things that come into my mind, every one of them, it says in Ezekiel. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom I have to do. He knows and proclaims the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. When he calls for me to gird up my loins like a man and demands me to answer, when he asks me where I was when he laid the foundations of the earth, When he commands me to lay bare my full understanding, I, like Job, am left speechless. For I do not know what he knows. I do not see what he sees. My God has entered the springs of the sea and has trolled their depths. The gates of death have been opened unto him, and he has seen the doors of the shadow of death. He has entered into the treasures of the snow, has seen the treasures of the hail, which he has reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war. When the kings of the earth inquire and ask, art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen in the interpretation thereof? What's your answer to that? Uh, how in the world can we know a dream that someone has, let alone know the dream, but the interpretation of the dream? Unless they give us a few more clues. Could you share the dream with me? Then I can make up an interpretation. No, you need to know the interpretation without them telling you. How do you do that? Our God Jehovah is not like other gods who are impotent and wholly unable to reveal and then interpret the secret, of, secret dreams of kings. But rather he is a God that revealeth secrets and maketh known what shall be in the latter days. He is able to declare future events before they come to pass and declare the former things that have already passed with perfect understanding. Our God knoweth all things. So ask me what my God knows and I will answer my God knows everything. His understanding is infinite. Every word spoken, every word left unspoken, every thought, every dream, every sigh and wonder, every inclination of the heart. He knows my down sitting and my uprising. He understands my thoughts afar off. He compasses my path and my lying down and is acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, my Lord knows it altogether. My God knows the intimate movements of the smallest cell in the remotest part of the universe. He can see the entirety of the heavens and knows the moment-by-moment experience of every living creature. He knows every probability, every course of action, every microscopic push, of every microscopic atom that is necessary to accomplish his every errand of glory. He knows everything the enemy devises, every trap laid at the feet of his saints, every fiery arrow prior to it even being pulled from its quiver. He knoweth what is in the darkness. My God has never taken off guard. He is fully aware and fully knowledgeable of every secret counsel of darkness and every conspiracy to undermine the purpose of his cross. He knows all that can happen, all that may happen, all that certainly must happen, and all that will happen. There is no blindness in his gaze, no shadow in his wisdom, no cloud in his understanding, for he is the light, the true light, a great light, the light of the world. Okay, the highness of God continues. 
Let's do a meditation on his power, authority, and preeminence. You starting to realize our God is fairly impressive? This is who he is revealed as. The fact that you have not lived in accordance with this reality doesn't mean he is adapting to fit. It doesn't mean he's been in a box in your life. It means that you need to have a full and clear understanding of who he is because he's never changed. He does not alter even though we don't esteem him as this. He is this. No matter if we understand it or see it or know it. A meditation on his power, authority, and preeminence. My God has measured the waters of this earth in the hollow of his hand, medied out heaven with a span, comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. To him the nations are a drop in a bucket and are counted as the smallest, small dust of the balance. When he heads off to war, there are none that can stay his hand. He sits as king between the mighty cherubim, above all, over all, and in control of all, the creator of the heavens and the earth, God of all the kingdoms of this earth. He can bind the sweet influences of Pleiades and loose the bands of Orion. He can set the dom- dominion of his ordinances in the earth. He can send forth lightning, number the clouds, and stay the bottles of heaven. He is the mighty God, the everlasting God, overall God blessed forever, the God of the whole earth, and his throne is forever and ever. He is the Almighty, which is and which was and which is to come, the creator of all things, the upholder of all things, the father of eternity, the beginning and the ending, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the rock of ages, the head of every man, the head of all principality and power, Lord of lords, Lord both of the dead and the living, Lord of all, Lord over all. He is the prince of princes, the prince of the kings of the earth, he that filleth all in all, the king of kings, the righteous judge, the king of saints, king of nations, king over all the earth, the king of glory, crowned with many crowns, and he sitteth king forever. And before him all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Before the mountains were brought forth or ever he had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, he was God. When the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against him, he shall laugh and shall hold them in derision. He is bound by nothing but his own nature and his own law. He is not limited in power nor governed in action by the will or the pleasure of any angel, demon, or man, but rather he is limited and governed only by the dictums and restraints of his loving prerogative to gain for himself a peculiar people, to establish his kingdom in this earth and to shed abroad his glory unto the heathen. And in the not-so-distant future, when he will return to bring terrible judgment to nations and his feet shall touch down on Mount Olivet and see it divide asunder, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. All will behold the Ancient of Days, whose eyes are as a flame of fire, whose voices is the sound of many waters, and whose countenance is as the sun shining in all its strength. They will see the fiery stream issuing forth from before him, the thousand thousands ministering unto him, and the ten thousand times ten thousand that stand before him at the judgment. And all will behold the one at whose feet all crowns will be cast, for he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for he has created all things, and for his pleasure they are and were created." So in concert with the noble King David, I pronounce, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Period. End of discussion. Do not deny and resist this God. This God has beckoned you. And he has said, submit. You had no hope in this world. You, according to the same word that has revealed this fact, 
we're outside of the grace of God, without hope and without avenue of salvation. But this God, for whatever reason, was moved by love for you. Did you just hear the description of this God? And this God who is so far and beyond us was moved by love for us. This peculiar people down here that he desires to gain for his own and enter into intimate fellowship and relationship with. He said, them, you. Calling you by your own name. Knowing you more intimately than you know yourself. He says, yes, you. It's like, me? But do you see how big and grand you are, God? You. I want you. He has called you. Do not dare resist. So we've just given a meditation on the highness of God. I would encourage you when these notes come online this week to download that and meditate upon it. Not just this week, but every week to come. To just ponder the reality. Look up the scriptures, because all that was was just a compilation so that it would read and it would all interlink. But that is what the word of God, which by the way, the word of God is fact. It is not wishful thinking about who God is. It is a statement of fact. It is God himself declaring to us as men and women who he is. Well, he also makes it clear how unlike him we are. So we have the highness of God, and now we're going to do a meditation on the lowness of the human condition. Christians get in trouble for talking about the lowness of the human condition. You see, we don't, we're not that hot, okay? We, we love to prove to this world, humanism by definition would be us attempting as men and women to show to this earth the goodness of men, the greatness of men. Have you seen the great minds of history past? Look at these inventors. Look at these conquerors. Stand in the face of Alexander the Great. Stand in the face of Napoleon, earth, and you will behold a man. Stand in the face of Einstein, da Vinci. These are such accomplishments of what men in their strength can do. And it is dust. It is nothing. It is reputed in heaven as nothing. This is nothing but the world. We clamor after it. The great athletes of our age, have you seen what this man can do? And we say, have you seen what my God can do? Have you seen and beheld what my God has done? That's a Christian. A Christian isn't trying to show off who they are. A Christian is interested. Their sole priority on planet Earth is to show off who God is. So let's just get it straight. The highness of God and the lowness of men. So this is just a quick meditation. It's not to try and make you feel bad. Ezekiel 16 is talking about the nation of Israel. And I want you to realize this is an incredible link with who we are outside of Jesus. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem again to again hear the word of the Lord... I'm not exa- caused Jerusalem to again, the word of the Lord came. Not sure what that is supposed to be saying, but it says something good. Saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, As for thy nativity, in other words, thy birth, 
In the day thou was born, thy navel was not cut, neither was thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou was not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. No, I pity thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou was cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person. In the day that thou was born, and when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. What a statement. And I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. God has come to us not because of our grandeur, not because of our da Vinci-ness, our Einstein-esque-ness, not because of our Napoleon qualities. He is not impressed with us, but he has chosen us. He loves us. The highness of God meeting the lowness of his creation. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them is turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So the great contradistinction, the highness of God and the lotus of men. Quick meditation given us by God himself. Do you see it, is what God is saying. Do you understand that you are not like me? He is what the Bible terms as holy, which means other than. We have a tendency to hear the command in Scripture that says, be ye holy as I am holy. You try. You try to be as God. You try to imitate that, the highness. Attempt it. Go for it. You will only prove the lowness of men. That's what we are good at. That's what we are equipped to do is to demonstrate the futility of men to be as God and to be as we ought to be. God created us and he set forth a pattern and he says, this is who can interact with me. Those that are built according to this pattern that are as they ought to be. And we, every one of us, fails in that measurement. We cannot be this way. There is a problem which sets the stage for what Christian history calls the gospel. Because there is a great contradistinction between the highness of God and the lowness of men. And we can't bridge this gap. Nathan on Friday was talking about the heavenly place. And he he talked about this thick brick wall that stands between us and what we esteem. We want the presence of God. We esteem it. Many of us as Christians have spent our entire lives yearning for that closeness and that intimacy. We want to have our old man dead so that sin no longer rules in our body. We long to have the newness of life as talked about in Romans 6. We long to be seated in the heavenly place with authority over all darkness in our souls so that we can say no. And it's kept at bay and it doesn't control us, but Jesus controls us. We see it, we long for it, but there's a wall between us. And his way of describing it, which I thought was great, is we bang our head against the wall over and over and over again, saying, won't it come down? But in our own strength, in our own intellect, in our own mentalities, we attempt to take on the impossible. We cannot bridge this gap. It is impossible for us, which leaves us at the mercies of the pattern, which is judgment, God has said, unless you live this way, you are excluded from my presence. And the pattern, also set by God in his economy, means eternal judgment. It means separation from the Almighty. 
You cannot enter my presence. You will be cast out. Gulp. For God so loved the world that he gave. The great condescension. The highness of God entering the stable of manhood. We are seeing such a vast contrast here. And to realize that our God, seated above all, most of the descriptions we saw in the highness of God were delivered in the Old Testament before God took on skin. God was making it very clear who he is. I want you to realize that for the Jew, the Jewish mind cannot fathom what we are going to talk about today. Ironically, it was given to the Jews. They're the ones that were, they were entrusted with the highness of God. But they so long focused on the highness of God and the lowness of men and had to constantly bring sacrifices to cover that this notion that we're going to talk about today is so bewildering and even offensive. There is no way that the holiness of God would ever enter the temple of man's body. No. No, I refuse to accept that. My God would not limit himself like that. He would not degrade himself to come to our level to do that. A man inspired by God, but not God. How could he? If he was going to be born, how could he do it that way? How could he live that way? Luke 1. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? I'm not married. And I'm not in any kind of relationship that's going to produce a baby. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The great condescension. God becoming a fetus. Not just a baby. I want you to realize this. The most, one of the most vulnerable things in all the earth is a newly conceived fetus. God literally choosing to come from the highest point. It's enough thinking of him becoming a baby. But that little baby was formed at a conception, as the Catholics call it, the immaculate conception. It's a conception. And God is born at a microscopic level. And he allowed himself to come down to the lowest possible place, the most vulnerable and seemingly defenseless position in a young girl's body without a, her, without a troop of soldiers standing guard. This young girl totally made vulnerable and seemingly illegitimately conceived. This is not a good plan, God. It is going to appear illegitimate, It's too vulnerable. You don't stick yourself in that type of a situation. How many of us as Americans would ever want our president, now maybe I shouldn't use that as an illustration. Uh, When we think of a national security issue, what happens? 
The president is the first thing to protect because we must save some kind of some kind of confidence, some centralized confidence to say, well, at least the president is there. Look, he's wearing a sweater vest. That means he's relaxed. That means he's confident. This is how they think. So we need to get him to NORAD, get him inside the mountain. And so if the nuclear bomb hits, he will still be alive to lead things. Yeah, that's just wisdom. You don't stick your president as a fetus in a, woman, a young teenager womb. No, that's not quite NORAD. That's not quite the barrier of mountain strength that we're looking for. This is utter vulnerability. The highness of God meeting the lowness of the stable of a man. To literally enter a stable. Sparganal to wrap in swaddling clothes. Omnipotence wrapped in weakness. Remember the title? Stable born and on purpose. This is not a good plan. Who in their right mind would ever do this? You know that everything about Jesus was purposeful limitation and weakness. Everything he did put him into a vulnerable position all the way up until the very death. Think about that. No, 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 don't. Don't go to Jerusalem. <laughs> this is not the place for you right now. They're wanting to hunt you down and kill you. No, no, let's not go to the Garden of Gethsemane tonight. I heard that Judas has gone to the priests. Uh, I hear people coming in the woods. Let's run. Don't say, I am he. Don't submit yourself. When they ask you questions, you tell them that you didn't say that. Clarify to them. Don't go silent before your accusers. On your way out when you're being hung as a criminal, clarify, this isn't right. You are pure. You are innocent. And then don't die. I mean, this is sort of basic, God, but we sort of need you around. We can't go if you die. We have nothing to follow. We lose our, our captain in our midst. This is a bad plan. And everything was on purpose. God did this purposely. Sparganao. And I want you to hold on to this word because it's profound. We always associate it with the Christmas story. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was wrapped in peasantry. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a feeding trough in a manger. What? He's in a stable. Stables don't smell good. He was brought into the lowest position, made vulnerable, and we always have a light that is glowing on it. And I want you to realize, yes, there is a light. This is incredible news, what is happening. There is a reason to rejoice, but I want us to feel the full humanity of what is taking place here. That the highest has been brought to the lowest on purpose. God knows exactly what he's doing. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. You shall find this babe, Sparganao. He'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes. I don't know if you sense, because if people know what I stand for, biblically, I don't know if you can sense and follow the trajectory of where this goes. You will find the babe, Sparganao, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Do you see the gospel continue there? Mary is a picture of the believer. The life of God conceived within. Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
You will see it. This will be a sign unto you. Because the babe will be in swaddling clothes. Sparganao, again. Omnipotence wrapped in humanity. It's the gospel. God come to earth <clears throat> as a little lamb. Okay, let's, let's pick our animal. Okay, we all are betting people. You know, we're low on money because some of us are students. And, uh, you know, we've sort of gotten that um, lottery craze. We're thinking, you know, I, if I could just get, you know, a good win, I could pay for my education. I'm not trying to sponsor this thinking. I'm just saying this is a vulnerability maybe you're struggling with. And so we're all getting together, and we're going to have some animal fighting, which is probably illegal. <laughs> but you get to pick any animal. Okay, Harper is very good at picking animals, by the way. Uh, let's see, her favorite three, brown bears, gorillas, and mean tigers. Okay, I would recommend, I don't know if those are her three picks, uh, you know, all chained together, coming against whatever animal you pick. What animal are you picking? Okay, a, a lion, not a bad choice. An elephant, I don't know, you know, I, uh, Hudson was telling me the other day that elephants are the one animal that is uh, plant-eating that doesn't ever, that never gets attacked. No, he's not like in the sights of any other carnivore. You know, so you can pick an elephant and the, all the other animals that go against him are probably just going to be like, whoa, and then run, run off. What, what are you going to pick? If you're a betting person, here's my advice to you. Do not pick a little lamb. You follow me? If you're going into war and you're going to pick your weaponry, do not pick a lamb. Okay, lambs, march. <laughs> you need to realize this is purposeful language in Scripture. You've grown up around it, and as a result, you don't realize how utterly preposterous it is. Lambs are meek and mild which means they have no fight in them. You come up to them, and you're like, I'm going to kill you, and they lay down and stretch out their neck. That's a lamb. This is not a good fighting machine. Up, come on, to it. We need to do some drills with this lamb. God came not just as a fetus, but as a lamb. This is the revelation of Scripture. Behold, the lamb of God John the Baptist sought not the mighty conqueror from God. He is God and he will destroy all that will stand against darkness. Oh, he will. But guess how he chooses to do it? As a little lamb? Bad plan. Bad plan, God. Okay, uh, before this gets going any further, could we stop it and reconsider? Could you bring up a council? We have a whole bunch of humans down here that are thinking this through and it's not very wise. God, come to earth. Yay, God, he's coming. He's going to come and do it. Uh, what, what's this? As a lamb? Oh, no. Uh, stop. Stop everything. You know, uh, we need to do this over. Bad take. Uh, something went wrong. Miscommunication in heaven. You know, poor God got stuck in a little baby. Uh, he was supposed to come riding on a white steed. What went wrong? where the highness of God and the weakness of humanity intersect. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The highness of God in the absolute weakest creature. God purposely set the stage this way, stable born, on purpose. 
He did this for a reason. Most of us just miss it because we grow up in Christianity. We're like, oh yeah, he's a lamb. Do you know what that means? That God, the highness of God, is limited to a lamb? That is absolutely preposterous and extraordinary. God setting aside his almighty godness. When he came, he wasn't just functioning as God. He functioned as a man, though he was God. He literally set aside all that would be God to function as a little lamb, as a baby. He really was a baby. But he was like us, but without sin. He did it right. He was the perfect enunciation of what highness can do in the lowness of men. God forsaking his fiery presence in his cloud of glory. God relinquishing the continual worship of the angelic multitudes. Could you imagine going from that? Constantly, the glory, the cloud of glory is always there. The reality of who you are is seen clearly to go into an environment where they don't recognize you at all. But you're not just a man coming down here and walking amongst the earth like a king, and they're like, hey, I'm the rightful king. Sort of like Aragorn from uh, the uh, Lord of the Rings. At least the guy is manly looking. You know, it's like, yeah, that's your rightful king. Jesus came as a baby, as an illegitimate baby. That just doesn't look right. God relinquishing the continual worship of the angelic multitudes. God purposely trading his almighty lion's mane for a lamb's woolly stature. God who still was 100% God and knew he was God and was unabashed by the fact that he was God gave up his reputation as the great I am and became one of no reputation. God, the master of worlds, the king of kings, the lord of lords, took on the form of a bondservant and allowed his ear to be pierced by his father in heaven that he would be bound to do nothing of his own will. God condescended to take on the swaddling clothes of humanity and is laid in a feeding trough as food for the starving multitudes. God functioned in the capacity of a mere man, unrecognizable as God, but God nonetheless humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the horrifying and gruesome death of the cross. God actually died. I still think I don't fully grasp it. God, not just anyone, you heard me describe all that God was. That's, just, that's a slight picture of what the Bible demonstrates. But God died. God gave up his life. God was poured out unto death. God tasted the penalty of sin, the wrath of God, and the dreadful judgment of almighty righteousness. The Arneon. Now, you notice I put a the in front of it because what this would read in the Greek would be the lamb. And in Revelation, this title is given to Jesus Christ 27 times. He's known as the Arneon, which means the little lamb. Okay, now Revelation is probably one of the most profound and large pictures of who God is in the Bible. And what does God purposely do in his revelation to John? It's a lamb. He's the Arneon. And it doesn't just mean sheep. At least a sheep is sort of the full-grown, mature, mature version of the thing. He's always a little lamb. Even weaker than a sheep. That's what he's known as, the little lamb that was slain. Little. Don't add that word to God. He's huge. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. The little lamb. He was limited. 
He took on this form and he became weak. Why did he do this? So that he could make many strong. The little lamb. That is baffling. The highness of God becoming the Arnion. The little lamb is used for it. This is in the Hebrew culture. This, the Arnion is very important to the Hebrews because the little lamb had three distinct purposes. So let's walk through those. And at the same time, you're going to see the gospel unfold. The little lamb or the Arnion is used for dot, dot, dot. Number one, sacrifice. So let's look at First Chronicles. And they sacrificed sacrifices unto the Lord, even a thousand lambs. There's all sorts of illustrations. I'm just picking one just to say this is what the nation would do. Lambs were for sacrifice. And so when God says, I'm going to become a lamb, that means he's becoming a picture of what the Old Testament was setting the stage for. Well, lambs are used for sacrifice. They are killed for the sins of a people. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That's John the Baptist speaking about Jesus. Behold the Arnion of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Behold the little lamb. You know, that doesn't sound like much of a compliment. If you're going to make the pronouncement, your messenger that was sent before you to clear the way and to make it clear that you're here, could you pick a better word than Arnion? Behold the little lamb. Behold the little insect. I mean, what, what, what does this sound like? This is weakness. Behold the weak one. Behold the little insignificant floppy thing over here that can't fight his own battles, needs a shepherd to do it. Behold the weak one, which taketh away the sin of the world. The penalty of sin. Now, before I get to that, let's talk about sacrifice, okay? We're going to walk through the gospel here. And if any of you have ever heard me share the gospel, I'm going to do this very quickly, okay, as we go through. But the gospel basically has these different dimensions. First of all, it deals with the penalty of sin, Because we cannot deal with it. Remember that brick wall that we were talking about earlier? We cannot get through it. The lowness of our humanity and the grievance that we have made against God, our rebellion to have self on the throne, we cannot deal with it. And the result of our rebellion, the result of us planted squarely in the rulership of our life is created a mess within us known as sins. Sin is the problem that we have. It's us on the throne in rebellion, the flesh in control of us. But the result of that are sins, plural. We can't get through this. But the Arnion, the blood of the Arnion, the blood of the little lamb is used to deal with the penalty of sin for atonement, for propitiation. You can look at these throughout this week. For justification from sin, for the forgiveness of sins, for the remission of sins, for the cleansing, washing from all sin. This is good news. In other words, and Jesus didn't come as the Arnion. He didn't come as the sacrifice. You still are bearing the penalty of sin. He didn't just come down and say, hey guys, God, you see this highness? You see how much unlike me you are? Yeah, guess what awaits you? Eternal judgment. All right, I'm out of here. And he ascends. He came down on a mission, and that was you. And he knew what stood in the way. And so he had to come as an Arnion. He had to come as a little lamb. He had to be one who was torn open. He had to be one who was sacrificed. He didn't just deal with the penalty of sin. 
he dealt with the problem of sin. You know that you have a problem with sin, not just the result of sin. You don't just have the effects of sin. You have a problem with sin. And that means no matter how much you esteem to get out of your cycle of sin, you can't. You can have Jesus wash away the penalty and deal with that and absolve it. But then guess what you do the next day? You do the same thing. And then it gets sort of awkward because you have to keep coming back to the little Arneon and say, I'm so sorry, but I need that blood again. Which, by the way, is perfectly fine to keep coming back to the little lamb. But there's a better pattern that God has set forth. And that is that we wouldn't just have the penalty of sin dealt with, but we would have the problem of sin dealt with. Which, in my case, is known as old Eric. It's an old man, it's an old disposition, an old countenance, an old behavior pattern. Where I am in control of my life. But the cross, the death of the Arneon... The death of the little lamb created an avenue, and in his death, I die. When the Arneon died, when the Arneon was sacrificed, old Eric died in him. Therefore, old Eric no longer has to rule in my life as I reckon that, as I take that death of the Arneon as my own. This is incredible news. Not just the penalty of sin, but the problem of sin has been dealt with by the Arneon. Here's a few scriptures that go with that. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, that she put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, the former way of life. That's what conversation is. It's the message of your existence. It's always been you. It's always been about you. Now the conversation shifts and it's all about him. But you can put it off now. You can take off. It's like shedding a husk, shedding a skin. You can put it off, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Get rid of that old man in Christ. The Arneon dealt with it. Lie not to one another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Principle of scripture, what Jesus Christ did as the Arneon. As the little lamb, as he was sacrificed for you. And his sacrifice is not a small thing to us as Christians. When we say that it all comes back to the cross of Christ, when Jesus died that death, he died on Passover, and that's when the little lamb would be broken and, and, and cut open for a nation. And his body would literally become food. Clothing. So the first one was sacrifice. The second thing an arneon was used for in the Hebrew culture was clothing. Isn't that interesting? The lambs are for thy clothing, it says in Proverbs 27, 26. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. One of the most incredible realities of what is taking place in the gospel message is that an Arneon has come. And his death was your death. And when you enter into his death, when you allow his death to be your death, because you can't kill the old man no matter how hard you grit your teeth and try and do it, your old man stays alive until Jesus deals with the old man. And that was dealt with 2,000 years on the cross. You must reckon it. You must take it as yours. And when you enter into Jesus, suddenly he becomes clothing. You are now in the lamb, in the lamb's skin, if you will. You have entered into the lamb, the life of the lamb. And this is what it means. It's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. You can't live this life as you ought to live it. He did. And so therefore, when you enter into that lamb, that lamb's spotlessness that lamb's 
unblemished nature, that lamb's perfect righteousness, now is your clothing. The lambs are for clothing. The Arneon is for clothing. There's a few more scriptures about it. And to her, which is talking about, ironically, the wife of the lamb in Revelation was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. This is how it's been arranged. Heaven has conspired to bring about a new clothing for you. You've been clothed in your old man, but now, because of the cross, you can shed that husk of sin and selfishness, and you can take on a new clothing. And as a result, you are invited into the throne room of grace. The only way into God's presence is to have new clothing. You must have perfect righteousness. You must be decked out in the righteousness of God. For as many as you, of you has been, have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What a strange statement. That's because the Arneon is clothing. It is actual clothing. You've been baptized into Christ in and through his death. You entered into it, and now you are in him. And there are, you've put on Christ. You've put on the Arneon. But, ye put, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. What a strange statement. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Get in to the Arneon. Enter into the reality of what Jesus Christ did because when you enter into his death, as it says in Romans 6, which we talked about last Sunday, not only is his death and burial yours and the old man is dealt with, but now the newness of life that he rose to is yours. Get in the Arneon. The reason he came as a little lamb was to make a way for you. He did this on purpose. He knew exactly what he was doing. All of us can look with an incredulity at, at this plan of God, and it is the utter brilliance. We can't see its brilliance until we begin to look at it through the light of the gospel. And suddenly it's like, that's amazing. He was the Arneon, and that was the only way that I could be saved. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So when I'm going through the gospel, I basically have a breakdown of six key things, and it is this. The gospel is the incredible news of God that he has saved us from the penalty of sin, the problem of sin, and that he has invited us into his very near presence, and that he has adopted us as sons and daughters. So let's stop there, because there's two more. But when we are clothed, now we have the invitation in. Because of the Arneon, because it was sacrificed for us, if we enter into that, then the Arneon clothes us. And his righteousness is now our righteousness. It's like a borrowed righteousness so that we can enter into the most holy place. There's a reason for that. God wants us near. And so Christ created a way with his own body. There's an invitation to this very near presence. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You need grace to help in time of need. You are lost without this message. You have no hope outside of it. But because of Christ, it says, let us therefore come boldly in, not on our own merits. You might feel disgustingly weak and sick and dirty, not on your merits do you enter in. It's because of his sacrifice, his work. And the adoption of sons and daughters. 
Christ Jesus, in him you also trusted. You died in him. You trusted in, in him after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. You need to get into the presence. And the way you do that is by entering into him. And know what, you know what happens in that presence? There is newness of life. There is an impartation. He is the way and he is the truth, and he is the life. He gives life to the believer. Life, you don't need to live in death anymore. Defeat, that somber depression and oppression, no more. There is newness of life to be had. He's the sacrifice, he's clothing. You know what the Arneon was also used for in the Hebrew culture? Food. As far as I'm concerned, this is absolutely unbelievably profound. I shouldn't use the word unbelievable because that means it lacks the credibility to be believed. So, bad word. But it is astonishing. He is food. They shall take to them every man a lamb. This is the first Passover in, in Egypt. A lamb for a house, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And thus shall they eat it. And with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The lamb, the arnion throughout the Hebrew culture is understood not just as sacrifice to deal with sin, and not just as clothing, but it's known as food. Behold the lamb of God. That doesn't just mean the sacrifice of God. Behold the clothing of God. Behold the food of God. He was born in the place of bread. The house of bread is Bethlehem. He is the manna come down from heaven to feed a nation, to feed a world. They will eat him. I know that sounds strange. Sounds like cannibalism, and Jesus didn't blush. When he said, then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. By the way, I didn't uh, alter that uh, to make it sound uh, shocking. That's Jesus, quote, unquote. And drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For just in case you're thinking he's talking about metaphor and parable, for my flesh is meat indeed. And my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. He's the Arneon. In every facet of what an Arneon is, he was sacrificed. And that sacrifice is your hope of salvation. The way to deal with the penalty is his blood. The way to deal with your conscience and to have it purged is his blood. The Arneon's blood. And the way to deal with your old man that part of you that is always in rebellion against the things of God, that is always getting you into trouble, that is always bringing about that guilt, wave after wave of it, was dealt with at that cross by the Arneon. He is your sacrifice to deal with the penalty and the problem of sin. But he's also your clothing. And as you take that sacrifice, the clothing of that little lamb, that little Arneon becomes your clothing to bring you into the holy presence. His righteousness becomes yours. His spotless lambness becomes yours. And you're invited in. Why are you invited in? To partake of a feast. And we always think of a big banquet with, you know, for me, it would be steak or hamburger. I love cheeseburgers, double cheeseburgers especially. Milk, you know, chocolate milkshake. I love cheesecake. And so if it had like cheesecake with a drizzle of chocolate over, it's like, oh, a feast. 
You know what is in the feeding trough? It's a little babe in swaddling clothes put in the feeding trough. Your meal is Jesus Christ. Because unless he enters in, unless he becomes literally your sustenance within, you have no life in you. That's his words, not mine. His his body is food. He must enter in. You know why we're called the body of Christ? Because we become his body. We take him in and we become the body, the house for the spirit of God. We must take in and ingest the living God. Blood in the Hebrew culture is life. That life was purchased for you. How did it get to you? Because you entered into the sacrifice. And then we're clothed in the Arneon, in that, in that woolly perfection of the Arneon. And then you were brought in to that holy place which you have no deserved right to come into. And then what happens? So the presence of God can enter you as food. And you can find your satisfaction. You can find your life and your wholeness. There's new management at the helm. The old man is removed as a husk from your life. And now Jesus has brought you in so that he can come into you. That's the work of the Arneon. The mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints via the amazing work, I'm adding this, via the amazing work of the little lamb which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ, the Arneon, must get inside of you. That lamb nature, that lamb person of God, must find the throne in your soul. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the faith, I live by the faith, I now live in the body, or in the flesh. I'm sorry, it says flesh, not faith. And now live in the flesh or the body. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Over and over again. This is a sampling of what it says in scripture. But that Arneon is the gospel. It's Jesus, and what Jesus Christ did was he created the way to deal with the problem of sin. I'm sorry, with the penalty of sin. And then he dealt with the problem of sin. The penalty, he washed you with his blood. He gave you a cloak of himself so that you can always walk in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, and your conscience will no longer smite you as you move forward to interact with your God. But that you can find that your sin and your behavior can be dealt with by that blood. But you also have the opportunity to enter into his death and see your old man, the problem with your existence, dealt with. And in that clothing, you're beckoned into his chamber, his chamber of love where there's a treasure chest of grace. And he will equip you with everything you need for life and godliness. And his main agenda is to get inside of you. Not to just have you inside of him, but he wants to come inside of you. And he wants to live there. And he wants to prove his nature And he wants the fruit of your life, just as it was for Mary, the fruit of her life, the fruit of her womb was Jesus. A babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. So Jesus desires the fruit of your life. This will be a sign unto you. You will see a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a feeding trough. Your life is to become food for this dying world. And God omnipotent will once again be swaddled in humanity. What an incredible picture. 
The gospel goes full circle. It rescues you so that you can become a rescuer. It feeds you so that you can become food. It is a sacrifice for you so that you can become a sacrifice for others. Jesus Christ is the Arneon, and he calls us to be Arneon. He calls us out as sheep. He calls us out in similar weakness. Bad idea, God. I mean, it's one thing for you to do it. You're God. But you can't call me as an Arneon. I mean, God, I can't go that low. I can't allow those same things to happen to me that happened to you. You're bigger than me. You're stronger than me. You can pull that off. Don't call me as a little lamb. The commission. Not just the penalty of sin, not just the problem with sin. Not just the invitation to his very near presence. And not just the adoption as sons and daughters of the king. But adopted, grafted in because of that clothing, because of that blood, because of what the Arneon has done. He was sacrifice, he was clothing, but he was also food. And he becomes our life and our sustenance and he calls us forth. And Jesus said unto them, come ye after me and I will make you to become fishers of men. You will do as he did. You will go into this world and die to see others set free. The indwelling power. So let me go through the gospel very simply. Those of you that have heard me say it for years, you'll understand this at a deeper level. The penalty of sin. The problem with sin. The invitation to his very near presence. The adoption as sons and daughters. The commission. We are called to work for the king of kings. What a privilege. We are commissioned to go out into this world and to be food, to be laid in the feeding trough, to be sent as sheep among wolves. But then, Jesus, as we're getting ready to leave and we're, we're obedient unto this death as an Arneon, he doesn't send out his Arneon to lose. Jesus was sent forth not to lose, but to win. I know it appears like it's death and destruction that awaits the Arneon. Jesus died, there's no doubt about it. But as he was dying, he won. That is our commission. And the way we accomplish this is not in our own strength, but through his indwelling power. The gospel has purchased the ability, that little Arneon has purchased the ability for him to become food in our life so that we go out to win just as he did. That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Almighty strength discovered in earthly weakness. I'm going to go through this as quick as I can, but this will give you an amazing picture into the Arneon. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, most of you have probably memorized that at some level or at least heard it many times. When I am weak, then I am strong. There is an incredible pattern that God has set forth through the little Arneon known as Jesus Christ. He has set forth a pattern which says when a man or a woman becomes weak and wholly dependent upon God, has no agenda of their own, that weakness becomes the dwelling place of almighty strength and the highness
purpose of God is revealed. So the end conclusion of weakness is not weakness. The end conclusion of weakness is the highness of God being demonstrated. So our end conclusion as Christians is not defeat. It's not to be tread under by the enemy. It's to be the head and not the tail. It's to be the victors. Jesus wins, and he sends out his men and women to win and be victorious. But as little Arneon, as little lambs, he does it. And as a result, he mocks the wolf packs. Because who wants to be defeated by a, a throng of lambs? Especially when you're tough wolves. God's lambs win. The best way of looking at it is Jesus Christ is gagged, his arms tied behind his back, his feet tied. No hope. God is captive to the enemy. And God wins. In his weakness, he destroyed all the powers of earth and hell. The vulnerability of the Lamb of God. He had to demonstrate these things. And so I picked out of our, you know, we, we taught canon this week of the canonicity of Christ. He perfectly matched with the Old Testament. So what I have here is I have a quick list of things that he had to do to prove himself the Messiah. And yet, as you'll see in each one of these, each one of the ones I chose are impossible for him to do. He, he became weak, and what happened? The power of Christ, or the power of God rested upon him. His weakness proved God's omnipotence as he submitted and became an embryo. He must be conceived into the womb of a virgin. Well, guess what? It's sort of hard to be in control of that process. He must be born in Bethlehem, Judea. The woman that he was conceived in lives in Nazareth. And by the way, uh, to correct something, I got canon tested immediately after I got done. And uh, I think it was Elizabeth came up to me and said, who was the one that called the census? And uh, I think she was baiting me because I think I said something like, you mean Herod? She goes, yeah, what does it say here? Caesar Augustus. Hmm, that's right. It was Caesar Augustus that called the census. This is amazing. Caesar Augustus calls the census. Mary is great with child. That child has to be born to match with the Old Testament and to prove the canonicity of Jesus Christ that he is indeed the Messiah. He had to be born in Bethlehem. So Jesus, helpless as an embryo, as a growing baby, as a fetus within, he has to somehow be born in Bethlehem, Judea. He has to trust that his God will hallmark his life, that he will take his precious little Arneon and make it a tribute to the creator. He has to become dependent. And what happens Mary, great with child, just happens because of the census they had to go back to the hometown of David where he was born. And Jesus is thusly born. Nine months pregnant. Perfect. Caesar Augustus fell into the plan. He must be called out of Egypt. How in the world can a little baby, a little toddler, get called out of Egypt? He lives in Israel. He's from Nazareth. Oh, he's born in Bethlehem. But then suddenly... The great attack and siege on young kids takes place because they, there's a rumor that a Messiah has been born. And so God awakens Joseph through a dream and tells him to take this little child to Egypt. And when Herod dies, then they bring him back. And he was called out of Egypt. He must be betrayed by a friend and sold for 30 pieces of silver. You know that if Jesus wasn't betrayed by a friend and sold for 30 pieces of silver, he is not the Messiah. 
This isn't something that's very enjoyable to submit to either. But there behind the scenes, Judas betrays. He comes before the rulers of Israel and for 30 pieces of silver he covenants. And it goes beyond that. Actually, technically, they also needed to buy the potter's field with that money. Judas is smote to the heart when he realizes he has betrayed innocent blood. And he comes back and throws the 30 pieces of silver down at their feet. Since it was blood money, they don't know what to do with it. And so what do they do? They go out and buy the potter's field. And once again, through his arnion, his dependence and his weakness, the omnipotence and the highness of God is shown. That even his enemies, the ones that are destroying him, play into his plan and prove that he is God Almighty. He must be numbered with the criminals. He couldn't die alone. Could you imagine? No, I can't. You can't kill me today. There's no other criminals. He had to be numbered. He had, there had to be more than one criminal. And he was numbered amongst them. He must die. He couldn't just be slapped around and scourged and then kicked out. Oh. I used to play soccer. It's pretty hard to do, actually, so I want you to be impressed. He can't just be persecuted and tormented and left to recover. He must be killed. You know what? It's sort of hard to say, could you finish this off, guys? Don't leave me here. You know that some people back in those days would actually hang, pay a penalty, and be taken down because they'd be up there for three days. They paid their penance. They paid their time. He had to die. His bones must not be broken. If they want to hurry the crucifixion, they break the legs. And that causes a quick suffocation. But Jesus, when the Roman soldier came to him to break his legs, and it's said in Scripture that not a bone of his will be broken. He couldn't have had a bone broken. And when the Roman soldier came up to him to break his legs, he was already dead. And so instead, they fulfill the prophecy by piercing his side. And suddenly, Psalm 22 is fulfilled. He must be pierced. He must rise again from the dead. The Arneon became dependent. And as a result, the omnipotence and the highness of God is revealed through his life. Because that's impossible. You cannot do that in your own strength. When he was weak, God was proven strong. I'm setting you up, by the way. Lambness proves omnipotence. Dependence proves that it is grace that truly saves. He was gentle. He was meek. He was guileless, innocent, spotless. This is what an Arneon is. He was prepared as an offering. He was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And he was silent unto slaughter. There is nothing in us naturally that wants to be prepared as an Arneon. But I want you to look at this list. He was gentle. God Almighty, the judge of the earth, a blazing, consuming fire was limited to an Arneon, to a little gentle, fluffy lamb. This is absolutely extraordinary. And I want you to realize what he is preparing for you. He is preparing a little fluffy skin, a little woolly habitat for you. It's known as Jesus Christ to enter into him. You enter into the lamb. Your clothing is a lamb. I know that doesn't seem that impressive. You know, if you really want to look cool, you know, going from house to house and ringing doorbells on October 31st, which my kids don't do, a little lamb costume, not that impressive. That's what we get. We get the little lamb costume. We get to clothe ourselves in Jesus Christ, and then guess what comes into us? A little lamb. 
The little lamb comes into us. We become as he was. We become Arneon. Even as, lamb, even as a lamb, he wins. Now look at this. I'm not going to criticize God and say that just because he's limited himself, now he suddenly loses. Even as a lamb, he wins, which is the great mockery of earth and hell. These will make war with the lamb. You hear that? What a hilarious statement. These will make war. There's this lamb over there. And there's all these nations come together to try and take down the lamb. Okay, what are the odds that the lamb is going to win? This isn't good. It's a lamb. Meek, mild, gentle. Come on, guys. Don't, you know, at least one against the lamb. Make the odds a little more favorable here. The nations come against the lamb. And God willingly maintains the moniker of the lamb. He says, no, call me the lamb. He purposely limits, limits himself. He maintains his lambness. And the lamb will overcome them. It says it way too simply. Don't you want to see that? What does it look like when the lamb overcomes the multitude? All the nations in their battle array. And the lamb wins. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Look at this. This is great. Revelation 6. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of the place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. Why? And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us in the face of him who sits on the throne. Oh no, who's on the throne? And from the wrath of the lamb. I almost called this message the wrath of the lamb. We don't notice the incredible irony in that statement. They're all hiding because of the wrath of the lamb. That is an incredible statement to realize that our God in his weakness is showing the great magnificence and highness of God. And he purposely has chosen this skin to reveal it. There's a reason why lambs are the weakest and most feeble of all creatures on earth. So that God can show how the pattern works. He takes the most feeble and weak form on this earth and through it will prove his triumph. That's his pattern. Oh, let me finish it. For the great day of his wrath, the lamb's wrath, has come. And who is able to stand? It's a lamb. Clothed in the lamb, indwelt by the lamb. We are clothed in the lamp, so once again, sparganao would be revealed on this earth. So let's look at this list to finish. Are we representing the gentleness of our God? When those oppose us, do we respond in gentleness? Do we have, is our pride immediately raised in our ire and we need to put them down? Or can we respond with gentleness knowing that in our weakness, God's strength is going to be made manifest? Are we meek? Are we broken to harness? Are we controlled only by the spirit? Or do we have our own fleshly agenda? Do you find yourself irritated and frustrated and angry easily? Because that's the opposite of a lamb. God wants to build a nature within you. And it might appear weak to the people of this earth, but I want you to realize there is no greater strength than will be found when you match yourself with the pattern of the Arneon in Scripture. Guileless, innocent and spotless. You know that he doesn't conspire? God didn't conspire. He didn't try and arrange events. 
he followed the lead of his father. And he allowed his father to arrange events. He was guileless. He wasn't manipulative at all. He was fully dependent upon the Father. We are fully dependent upon Jesus. He takes care of us as a shepherd takes care of his little lambs. Are we being prepared as an offering? Are we willing to be, to be put in the feeding trough? Are we willing to become a, a, a meal for a dying world around us? That even though we die, even though we are, our bodies are broken and our blood is spent, that we are re revealing the Arneon in and through our obedience? Are we obedient unto death, even death on a cross? The most miserable, the most horrible form of death. Are you willing to be an Arneon? Are you willing to be made after the pattern? Are you willing to be silent as you're being led away? Silent when God wants you to be silent. You know that when God typically is asking us to be silent, that's when we want to speak. You know when we want to speak is usually when we're supposed to be silent and when we're uh, supposed to be uh, talking, you know, usually we want to be silent. I don't know if I just said that correctly. It sounded like I said the same thing twice, but hopefully you understood what I meant. We have a tendency to respond to the situation backwards. We are hard when we're supposed to be soft and we're soft when we're supposed to be hard. But are you willing to be silent at those moments when you most want to speak and defend yourself? And are you willing to defend the gospel and the truth of your king when you most want to shy away and go into a hole? We need to be ready to be Arneon, to be strong for Jesus Christ and to be weak for Jesus Christ. This message by Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message. But do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. More information can be found on our website, www.ellersley.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. Know that we are cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.